I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. One of the most moving parts of the DNC this year was my guest today and her poignant advocacy on behalf of her family, her state, and her country. Kristen Orquiza founded Marked by COVID after her father perished from the disease. Kristen, you gave a most eloquent, moving speech at the convention. Thank you for your care, for your family, for your country, and for your fellow citizens. Thanks for having me here. It's a privilege to chat with you. Kristen, if I may ask just from the outset, how is your family doing? Um, it, it must not just be tragic in the immediate aftermath, but it's a trauma over time. How are you and your family? Thanks for asking. It's tough. Um, you know, I don't think we fully have actualized the grief and trauma uh, from this entire experience, but we're taking it day by day, um, really leaning on one another for support. And one thing that's been, you know, uh, uh, oxygen for me is just the unconditional encouragement from my aunts and uncles and my mother to, to keep the fight uh, going on behalf of my dad and our country. And now you started an organization in addition to speaking at the convention. And tell us about the formation of the organization and what you're hoping to do in Arizona, in the greater Southwest, and across the country. Yes. Um, Marked by COVID is the organization that I co-founded with my partner, Christine, right after my father passed. The idea, um, well, first of all, my dad's name was Mark, so it's a little bit of a nod to him. Um, but the idea is to have a platform for folks to come forward and share their stories. People who have not just lost loved ones to COVID, survivors of COVID, folks whose lives have been impacted or marked by COVID because they've lost a job or because they're a teacher or because they're a frontline worker. This really is an opportunity for people to not just share their stories, but also hold elected officials accountable for the mistakes that they've made or simply put the abdication of responsibility towards prioritizing public health and people's lives in coronavirus uh, response. And so we're um, a very new institution. We've just gotten launched um, on July 8th of this past um, year, but we're growing rapidly and connecting with so many folks who are eager to share their stories and eager to learn more about how they can hold people who have failed them, like Governor Ducey in Arizona or Governor Abbott in Texas or Governor DeSantis in Florida, accountable for rushing to reopen with a total disregard of human life. You said it, Kristen, total disregard of human life. And, and that was captured in your remarks and in some of the programming during the convention. The, the negligence, the irresponsibility, and the culpability for over 170,000 deaths. I don't know if you um, were connected at all to the, the events of 9-11 of in terms of the trauma and how old you were in experiencing that or having friends or loved ones who um, lost livelihood. Um, but I don't 
see the media enough, myself being a New Yorker, myself being touched by 9-11, really making that comparison. I think that they are finally absorbing the fact that this disease terrorized us, not just because it's an invisible enemy, but because there was a dereliction of duty. But I I wonder how you, um, I think a millennial like myself, an old millennial, not you, me. Oh, I'm an old millennial too. (laughs) That's what I I thought. But how we growing up probably in middle school or high school um, when 9-11 happened, how, how we relate to it in that vein, it is, it is at the level of, an, of a 9-11 or a Kennedy assassination or a Pearl Harbor. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. And that's a comparison that I've been making recently. Every three days, we lose the amount of Americans that we lost at 9-11 on one day. Every three days. The response that we have seen across the United States and coming from the Trump administration isn't even on a radar of the type of attention that we should be marshalling to combat the common enemy that we have right now, which is this virus. Um, And instead, what I see the president doing is, is... is actually not only turning away his attention, but you know, downplaying, calling this um, the China virus. It's not too different from you know what happened during the AIDS crisis in the late '80s and early '90s, when you know we tried to pigeonhole this as a gay disease. Um, we have a responsibility to the American public to prioritize simple common sense public health measures. And the fact that this administration can't even do that is we should, the the alarm bells have been ringing for a very long time. And that's basically part of why I came forward. My, My dad did not deserve to die alone in a hospital room. The 170,000 people who have passed did not deserve the ending that they got. And if we don't do something yesterday, more people are going to die preventable deaths. You said it. And I think that that is more and more being demonstrated to the public. I don't know why, though, the aftershock is still not uh, recognizing the, the fullness of the, of the era. Um, and, and maybe that's because we're not on breadlines universally. Maybe, you know, it's not, it hasn't had the, the cataclysmic Great Depression effect for the majority of households. Um, you know, there, there is a segment of the population where the, the concern for your, your neighbor's health and being your brother or sister's keeper is sufficient that is sufficient alarm what are you finding in reaction to your convention speech are the the different degrees of that concern where we as a country can see factually and literally the terror that this virus has caused i mean i think that the convention did a really good job of centering um you know the coronavirus response um as a very convincing argument to not support Donald Trump. 
But I do think that part of, you know, what I've been seeing in my own activism over the course of the last six weeks, but I, I knew even before then was that the people shouldering the biggest burden of this pandemic are not the people who have the traditional power or microphone. It is disproportionately impacting communities like mine, Latinx communities, Black communities, Indigenous communities, folks who were on the front lines, making sure our groceries were delivered, making sure our fruits and vegetables were picked so that our skeleton economy could charge on during the shutdowns. And I think because of that disproportionate impact without it really landing on anybody's doorstep um, until you know more recently, as the numbers have started to skyrocket, has really created a disconnect for the media and others to really take this pandemic seriously and the response uh, to it as seriously as it's as it's needed to be. And just in the course of the last couple of days, since you know being able to have the privilege to share my story on the on the national stage, I've gotten an outpouring of you know additional people coming forward saying, "I've lost a loved one." or I'm a teacher and I'm terrified. What can we do to stop this? What can we do? How can I help you? And you know, that's incredibly inspiring to me, but it's also alarming to me. We are all on the cusp of being marked by COVID if we don't act now. Right, and, and it is a marked contrast to the 9-11 response in the uniform unity. The <laughs> And, and that is, that is mind boggling. Um, you know, have we become so much more narcissistic and so much um, less literate uh, and caring? And, and, you know, I don't, again, I don't know, but I welcome hearing from your perspective, how your community and your neighborhood responded to 9-11. But there's still, the, the, the disunity, even if it is a small minority, um, about uh, challenging mask wearing or closures and sensible scientific literacy, it, there's, there seems to be, if there was a minority response to 9-11, it was, it was tiny compared to the minority response to COVID that has made legitimate some things that never should have been legitimate. Right. You know, I, I think about this, um, I comes to mind a, a mentor of mine who always used to say, Kristen, the fish rots from the head. And the difference that I see um, in the two responses is that even though I was very critical of the Bush administration, there was decisive action from them to try and mitigate the fallout and, and, you know, also just respond in real time to potential additional attacks during 9-11. And seeing that leadership from the White House, like in my community um, and abroad, you know, people came together underneath a patriotic banner. And that wasn't just here in the United States. That was also abroad as well. I was actually abroad whenever 9-11 happened. And I was in London and I would open up my mouth which I obviously had an accent in comparison to folks there. And, you know, on, on September 12th, people stopped in the street and said, are you okay? Is your family okay? 
what can I do to help you? Just assuming that I was directly impacted um, by that catastrophe. Um, part of what we're seeing with coronavirus is that it is, you know, a slow moving catastrophe in some regards versus that big episodic moment. Um, but also it's the leadership vacuum. Donald Trump is not responding to this like we see leaders across the world, whether it's you know Angela Merkel in Germany or the Prime Minister of New Zealand, really taking this seriously and you know responding with the type of attention and fortitude that we need to prioritize human life, American life, his own supporters' lives. Kristen, what was the most important thing that Vice President Biden communicated in his speech that you would like to see him reiterate over the course of the campaign? It's a great question. Um, I really appreciated um, seeing more so than just the, the, the words, but seeing the emotion and the anger and the frustration um, because this is not a happy moment in um, America's history. This is a dark moment upon which the history books will examine for chapters on end. It is not a time to sugarcoat what has happened, but it is a time to act and speak from the deepest part of each of our individual souls to really connect with people that we have everything to lose if we don't come together and chart a different path. What about specifically the mask mandate? And the other thing that he said, I thought quite powerfully was invoking, th there will be no miracle. And, and similarly invoking that you cannot find an economic solution until you find a public health solution that protects the country in every one of the 50 states. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, these, you know, the Democratic Party on day one um, highlighted these, you know, three crises that we're in, right? The racially, um, the racial justice crisis, the coronavirus uh, crisis, and then the economic crisis. And I see the three of them inextricably linked to one another. The coronavirus crisis has laid bare the, you know, structural racism that we are you know, experiencing and know and have been talking about through the conversation, through the movement of Black Lives. But I also think this harkens back to FDR's time in office and his call for an economic bill of rights. Um, I think we are in a moment now where we need to be bringing these pieces together and really thinking about how do we rebuild in a way that has a more equitable and just economy that ensures that we are all able to meet our full potential and our opportunity. And I saw that in uh, Vice President Biden's speech nods to this different vision that is not foreign in the American dialect. And in, in fact, it was essential in really helping to create some of the social safety nets that we have today, like social security. Um, on the mass mandate piece, um, I will share with you that um, Vice President Biden announced a call for the mask mandate on August 13th, which would have been my dad's 66th birthday. 
Um, we have been pushing for mask mandates. We know that the efficacy is there. The CDC states, you know, we could save so upwards of 70,000 lives with a universal mask mandate. Um, I think that is the very first step in addressing this crisis is not only that mandate, but enforcement mechanisms that ensure that people who, for whatever reason, um, are not concerned about the health of their neighbors, you know, will get a fine if they're caught in public without one. You know, Tammy Duckworth speaking at the convention called Trump the coward in chief. I've called him the rigor in chief for his attempts to delegitimize a, a fair election. Um, but it, it occurs to me that in Arizona, you have cowards in chief, uh, coward governor, coward senator. And I wonder how much of your consciousness raising and electoral advocacy will be likewise in service of um, would-be Senator Kelly, who is running against a, a Republican who, um, you know, has, has taken the Trump line on everything, including the disinformation, including the anti-science, anti-health uh, piece of it. Uh, um, I wonder how much you're, you're focused on, on that um, as emblematic of, of the country, presuming that you will be in Arizona uh, for the foreseeable future as we all are quarantined during this pandemic. You know, I am hopeful that things change in Arizona. And it is very much a state in play in this election. And you're right. There are many people who hold offices right now that are lockstep with the Trump administration, blindly following him. I mean, it is unacceptable that the Senate walked away to go on recess without passing, you know, their version of the HEROES Act. We need a representative um, in, you know, at the Senate level, who will do their job? And that is definitely not uh, Senator McSally. Um, you know, Arizona is my home. It's where my parents were born. It's where I was born. It's where my family lives to this day. And, you know, a lot of the politics have been hijacked by this, you know, extreme right wing. And, you see that changing. And I think that's because of a lot of organizing work over the past decade on the ground, working with community groups to really help raise their voices and help be in a position now where I think we could see a different color this November for my home state. Let me ask you, one of the things that was focused on the last night of the convention was Vice President Biden's advocacy for a moonshot, a moonshot to cure cancer, um, which has taken a variety of forms. Uh, of, of, there is research on cancer vaccines, therapeutics, treatments. Um, you know, one thing that occurs to me reflecting on the convention is how, why and how the candidate in the, in the convention did not really tie together his, his passion more explicitly, his grief, uh, what he's experienced in, in specifically his son who died of cancer, and the argument that he is the investor in chief. He wants to invest in the public health solutions in addition to being the moral leader of the country. I don't know that that argument was made explicitly, and I don't know if that was deliberate or not, in tying together his, his passion for the 
a cure to cancer and his passion for a public health response that treats every single one of us with dignity and would have prevented so many of these tens of thousands of deaths. Did, did that occur to you too? You know, I, I appreciate you raising that because I saw that, you know, pop up in bits of pieces. I believe uh, Secretary Clinton's speech did a little bit of a nod towards, you know, his own, the vice president's own experience, making him so uniquely qualified to, you know, act from a place of compassion because he's known, um, he's known loss. And I, you know, saw in some of the videos to a, a nod to that. And I found myself remembering, yeah, this guy's been through a lot. And as somebody person, you know, who just has gone through and is going through a life-changing tragedy, I know in myself, it has made me such a, a stronger person, a more empathetic person, um, a more calculated person. And, you know, to your point, I didn't necessarily see the vice president himself pulling those uh, examples together from his own grief. And I think it's a direction that can only continue to open up doors and windows into just how uniquely qualified he is to have, like, what does compassion really mean? You don't just, I think compassion is one of those things like wisdom. You can be compassionate, but you're not really compassionate until you've experienced something really, really bad. And, you know, the president losing his son to cancer, I can't even imagine the pain. Losing his wife, losing his daughter, he's, you know, his longevity does give him experience in that. And I think that is to his benefit, especially in this moment that we're in. Uh, where we haven't had somebody in charge who cares about anybody other than themselves. As a final question, Kristen, when you watch these debates, what do you want the journalists to be asking in connection to COVID um, and ensuring that we get responses that have integrity, which will likely only be from one candidate when it comes to the scientific literacy what would be most important for you to feel like these debates took seriously the, the trauma and human suffering that you've experienced and that the country has overall? I think that in addition to what's the plan, how are we going to mitigate right now to, to get our cases under control and make it safe to reopen in a way that, um, you know, minimizes exposure. I really want to know what is the plan for not only restitution, but also resiliency going forward. COVID-19 stands to create one of the largest constituencies of individuals who've been impacted by a major public health crisis. That we don't even know the full extent of what that means such as what are the long-term health impacts of somebody who's been on a ventilator for 40 days and survived to, you know, what are the impacts to a family that lost a patriarch that no longer has that income. And we need to make sure that in our recovery uh, plan, that there is, that the needs of those most impacted are centered. And so I want to know 
you know, what's the plan for that? How are we going to make sure that we don't leave behind the people that we found expendable underneath the Trump administration because we're not expendable and our lives matter. Kristen Orkiza, a most passionate um, and candid and charismatic advocate of American public health. Call me when you're going to run for governor. I, I may change my profession um, because you are inspiring and, and, I, and I pray for you and, and think of you and your family. Uh, thanks so much for your insight today, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great chatting and I look forward to connecting again sometime soon. Looking forward to it.